Welcome to the RSP cast. Welcome back. I am, I don't know, I'm either the Joker or the Riddler or the Penguin. Maybe he's the Joker or the Riddler or the Penguin. I don't know. Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman, we're back. Week 19 of the NFL season. Or what I'd like to say is, screw all that, it's draft season. We are. Yep, there we go. Yeah. It's draft time, friends. Exactly. So we can reset the calendar a little bit and enjoy the playoffs for what it is as well. Um, so, you know, happy late New Year to everybody. We had a national championship this, uh, this you know, game this earlier this week. A lot of my old co-workers and definitely friends were celebrating. I had my, my former editor at the at UGA's alumni magazine um, went, had lots of nice shots of driving down, um, you know, Broad Street in Athens and seeing the long line at two o'clock in the morning to ring the bell on campus. Everyone gets to... You get a shot to ring the bell, and with the national championship, there was a line probably that spanned around campus to to, to ring that sucker. Um, and people are out all night, and it's you know it's great for the for those folks. But you know, what were your thoughts on the actual game? I was going to say you say you were out all night. That makes me think of poor Stetson Bennett on Good Morning America the morning after, where it was clear that guy had not slept a wink. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and we got to stop putting these kids on air at 7 a.m. the morning after a national title game. It's just, it's not fair to them. As far as the game itself, I mean, a couple of things sort of stand out. Speed. I mean, just generally speaking, you turn that game on and you just watch three plays. It doesn't matter how they turn out. The speed on that field in Indianapolis was just incredible. I mean, whether it's Georgia's offense, whether it's Georgia's defense, Bama's offense, Bama's defense, just the speed of these players and what they're able to do is incredible. Um, it was interesting at halftime, there was a Twitter spaces with Seth Galina, Deontay Lee, and they were talking about how good athletes can make you bust in the secondary. And I thought that was really fascinating and an interesting discussion because, you know, you can be coached up extremely well. You can be extremely talented yourself. But the stress that the speed of elite athletes puts on you in the defensive secondary, it can cause you to panic. It can cause you to make mistakes. It can cause you to just get, you know, two steps out of place. And that's sometimes all it needs when you have these athletes. And so I, I thought that was an interesting discussion. And I think, look, it's nice when there's change. It's that there's nice, you know, in any league, sport, conference, division, whatever, when there's something that unexpected happens. And when you got the sense that, oh, here comes Alabama again, they're just going to win again. And to see Georgia sort of tip that apple cart a bit, that I think was a good development for college football. When you pair that with the equity that we're starting to see because of the NIL stuff, because of, you know, when, when Jacksonville State, when, when, you know, Deion Sanders can get the top recruit in the country to decommit from Florida State and go to a historically black college university to, a, you know, a, a school at that level. The playing field is going to be leveled a little bit. I think that's also good for the game. And so I think from that perspective, it was good to see Georgia win. Yeah, I mean, and I think the speed thing is great as a great point, especially for the college game, because there's so much greater variance between what is a good college player and a great college player compared yeah. to the level of this, the minimal level of variance between a good NFL player and a great NFL player. Whereas speed isn't at, you know, speed gets the, gets the marquee for um, 
NFL decision makers, but usually it winds up being former NFL decision makers who go on Twitter right. and talk about how Brashad Perriman is going to be quite valuable to a team. Um, maybe like three passes a year, but like, you know, in the, but in the college game, you take Brashad Perryman and put him on a team and, you know, your team goes from being maybe a, you know, a low level team in a division to contending for a division title, you know? So that's, you know, that's a huge difference. I think for, you know, I think for Georgia, watching Kirby Smart come into that school and after they got rid of Mark Richt, and I was a Mark Richt fan, I thought Mark Richt handled things with a lot of class. I thought what he did realistically was, listen, we're not going to out-recruit Nick Saban. We're, we're just not going to. That was his thought. Uh, you know, I could. You, I don't think he said that, but looking at it, I don't think he was going to recruit Nick Saban, and he knew that he couldn't sh- fish from the same pool as Nick Saban and build right. a team. And so for early on, I thought, well, they're, they're trying to out Saban Saban by hiring Smart. And are you really going to, are you, is Junior really going to beat Senior, you know, at the height of his power still? And so the early answer has been no, <laughs> you know, but until right. recently. Um, now you could say a couple of injuries certainly changed the, changed the scope of this game, um, you know, and a couple injuries during the season to some major players, Mechie and, yeah. and, and, and certainly <laughs> and Williams, Jameson yeah. Williams on that play. You know, certainly changed the outcome there. But the the point still being is the fact that Kirby Smart has taken Georgia to two national championship games and played both down to the wire. Um, yeah. tells me that it that he was successful in out and at least being as Saban as Saban is in terms of right. building the team, getting the recruits, and you know, fielding a team that can be competitive on that level. So, you know, hats off to him, you know, for for them being able to do that. And, you know, and, and I, I'm glad for Georgia because, you know, they were, they were, I think, one of the top schools in recruiting for the past five years. And last year they were fifth, but I'm sure that's about to jump up this year after winning a national title. They'll be back in the thick of it. And I, so, you know, I'm, I'm excited about that, but I also thought this was a fascinating example of, you know, my wife asked me about the game a little bit, which is rare, um, that she'd asked me about football. And I said, well, I think it would come down, just to put it simply, it would come down to both teams are both teams are good to great football teams all around, but one of them has a quarterback and the other one really doesn't. And that yeah. was kind of, I said, so the one that doesn't is going to have to play out of his mind and the other one's not going to be able was going to have to struggle a little bit for there to be a difference in this game because they're both pretty even with the exception of the quarterback who can make plays yeah. and Stetson Bennett to his credit you know that was just an unbelievable story you, you know to watch that game it was such an emotional thing right. if you know about this guy and to see him even interviewed and see him you know break out in tears the emotion of the moment and just say what were your thoughts when you threw you know when you fumbled that away and he's like i i I had to fix it like i couldn't i couldn't let this i couldn't be the reason this game was lost you know yeah and for him to step up and make the plays that he did you know obviously everyone that's the big headlining thing that you'll hear everywhere but it's still 
you, you know, it just tells you that how small of a margin of difference there was you yeah. know, among these teams. So, so let's talk a little bit about scouting because, you know, while, you know, while, now that we're getting to the pre-draft process, I wrote a piece about, you know, do you trust your gut feeling when you're scouting? How do you approach your gut feeling with scouting? And, you know, the, the, you can find that at the RSP site. But my main thought with is that intuition has value. The main thing is, I think, for me, you have to honor the fact that if you have some intuition about things and have flashes of insight, then and you come to trust that in a certain area of what you do, um, then you then you should honor it. But by honoring it, what I think that means is that you make note of it. Why, you know, try to analyze how you feel about it. Sometimes with intuition, with things like that, you could say, well, it's too ethereal. Once you start to try and pin it down, it just kind of dissolves, you know, and you can't put your hands around it. But I would, I would note what it is about that that triggered you about, you know, to have a positive feeling about a player or a negative feeling about a player. And then go back and do the rigorous, you know, analysis to see whether it supports that or not. Because at the end of the day, your intuition, my belief is, is that your intuition is, you know, what I've read from Malcolm Gladwell or a number of other different people who talk about it is that it's about you getting a baseline of knowledge to the point that now you're, you're recognizing and your, your brain is responding to things in a number of steps and just kind of processing those steps so quickly that you're not consciously thinking about it. Um, and you're just recognizing it. So can you break it down? And for me, I don't use my intuition to like say, I'm going to rank this player this high because I have a gut feeling about him. It's more, I'm going to, um, I, I have a good feeling about a Nick Chubb after, you know, watching a game. And I think he's great. But, you know, I at the same time, I need to watch more games. I need to watch. I probably watch more of Nick Chubb than any player I ever watched because of the injury that he had. And I still, after watching him post injury, I thought it doesn't matter. He's still that good. And, but I had to like really legitimately get into the weeds on certain things that I wanted to make absolutely sure. Same thing with Patrick Mahomes. I watched two plays of Patrick Mahomes against LSU. Like I think two years before he came out, Yep. And I turned off the TV and said, I can't watch any more of this because I'm going to get distracted. And he's two years away. Like, I, I, you know, but oh, my God. Like, it was like that Brett Favre kind of moment where you watch and go, oh, Lord, I got, I, you know. But, again, those are things that, you know, you have to balance it out. Like, honor that there's a feeling there so that you can kind of learn whether that feeling's a good thing or not. Yeah. And for me, intuition is kind of like what you said. It's a red flag in my mind that I need to triple check my work. That if I see a player, a quarterback, receiver, whatever, and I'm like, oh, man, this this guy's legit. This guy's something. I want to dot every I, cross every T. I'm getting that feeling sort of with Trey McBride this year where I'm like, you know, and I, I know we've talked about him earlier, and I had these plays where I said, like, I, I, I see Gronk. I, I see Gronk-type moments from him. That makes me think I have to watch even more of him. I have to make sure that 
that initial exposure and the gut feeling that I get as a result isn't something that's just been clouded by that initial exposure and it's not something leading me down the wrong path. And even though you, you at this point got enough experience to feel like, you know, I've seen what I've seen, the, the put the pen down moment. Like I see that. I don't care who it's against. I don't care who his teammates are. I don't care what the circumstances are. That kind of play is going to work at the next level really well. I want to then make sure because you know, and I know we're going to talk about players without Sergio Ron. I mean, Brett Rippin for me. I mean, Brett Rippin had a lot of put the pen down moments where I'm like, I don't care what people are saying about it. This is going to work in the NFL. And it didn't work the way I thought it was going to work, you know? And so it, it's a lesson from Rippin that if you have your gut and you trust your gut, that's great. Make sure you then fill in all the blanks, even to a greater degree as a result of that, because, you know, and, and, as with the, all of this in the evaluation space, the evaluation might be right. Other factors might make the evaluation look wrong in hindsight because sure. opportunity, draft capital, all of that stuff. Trey Sermon. Yeah. <laughs> I My mean, argument it, would be that. If, yeah. if Brett Rippin somehow gets drafted on early day two, the evaluation might look right because you'll get opportunities to play. You know, I would make the case that the evaluation of Rippon, all of us that liked him, is still right because he went undrafted and he's still a backup in the NFL that's gotten some starts. A lot of guys that go undrafted, even as quarterbacks, if they're not good, they're not going to be around for long. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, you know, with Rippon, there are lessons. Without, uh, opportunity is a huge part of it. But, yeah, for me, gut makes me think a guy's good or bad. I want to go watch more yeah. to make sure I'm right. And I found for me, I found that when a, when my additional studies confirm my gut feeling, it's basically confirming what I knew already. Right. It's basically what your intuition is telling. What my intuition tells me is, all right, how well do I know the material I've studied? And and because if my gut, if my studies confirm what my gut feeling was, then that means that my gut i'm basically getting gut feelings based on the things that i've really ingrained into my process right. but if i get a player who i like and then my studies confirm that i was not correct about that um and it usually happens when i've changed something over where i've like started to implement new material that i've learned like with wide receivers a couple years ago i started doing new things with wide re receiver work and so there were players that I thought I would like a lot more than I did. Like the kid at Indiana, I'm trying to remember his name right now. Um, I can find it really quickly, but he he got um, Phil Yor. Yeah. The, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I had a good gut feeling about Phil Yor, and then I watched his game more. And the, the more I, like, got into the nitty-gritty um, – you know about um the details of his game the less i liked him the you know like my gut i like i could still see him having value to a team as a slot receiver in a in the right fit but he wasn't a guy that i was like you got to get cooper cup you know type of thing yeah like you know cooper cup can do a ton of things that um so i I think, you know, Phil Yor was probably a good example of that for me who countered my feelings about a player. Now, I think gut feeling is different than imprinting. 
and, and like you know for the most of most of the people who I who listen to this show are smarter than we are so I, yeah. I imagine that most of them probably understand what imprinting is but for the few of you who don't um you, you know imprinting you know for, or at least my limited understanding of imprinting is more of the idea that you know, when you're younger or an early stage of development, there are certain influences and it usually takes place psychologically with parents, you know, that when you're very young, that you have like your parents' personalities and behaviors kind of imprinted upon you. And therefore, there's the theory that when you're attracted to somebody, there are certain aspects of your parents that you that you see in them and recognize in them that attract you to think that that's a suitable mate um so when i think about imprinting for football i think there's like there's some imprinting and there's some overlap between like um intuition and imprinting i think i bet there probably is but to me there's there's a part where it can be damaging if you don't know the difference between the two so for instance i i know my imprinting is is that um i can pretty much I can pretty much guarantee that if I really love a certain type of player that people are are divisive on, that player probably has some sort of off-field or maturity issue that that basically is preventing them from being at the best that they can be. Um, Because, you know, guys like... Brian West, not Brian Westbrook, Michael Westbrook from, I remember Michael Westbrook way back in the day, you know, who got in a fight with Stephen Davis on the sideline, yeah. who never really became the player that he could have been. Um, you know, guys like that, I, I'm immediately drawn to. I, you know, my imprinting is if you want a troublemaker um, or a guy who's kind of got that, who's got immense talent but is probably not ready to be a professional and sustain being a professional, those are the guys that I had to learn to like not be a moth to a flame to. And and so that's an example of, for me, characteristic-wise, unbelievable athlete, unbelievable like feel for the game, but can't do the little things that they need to do to continue to get better. And I would say that a you know a Michael Westbrook is a a great Michael Westbrook, Ricky Williams would be another example of that even at a higher level because he could still play at extremely high level. But folks who foot there was more going on in their life than just football, and it bled into football. Josh Gordon, another example yeah. of that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's the pocket passer, right? I mean, from, from the way that I, the era I grew up, the the th- the way that I played the game in high school in a sort of, uh, for the most part, a pro style offense. Like, got I still have that belief that you've got to be able to like stick your right foot in the dirt, hitch up, and make a throw on third and seven from a pocket. Like, and maybe there is something to that, but you. And that's sort of a push and pull that I go through now that I see that kind of player and I get drawn to it, ripping Rosen, like players that I sort of was very excited about. That was their style. And the game is sort of trending away from that. But I still, I see that kind of player, maybe Carson Strong this cycle. And I'm like, this could still work. This, this is the way you played the position. And so that's been a continual like unlearning 
in my sort of evaluation journey that there's different ways to play this position. There's different needs given what is happening from a schematic and athletic execution standpoint of the NFL that that guy's a dying breed. Now, Mac Jones is kind of pushing back against that. But that's kind of my imprint that I have to deal with every cycle. It's like you see that pocket passer type and you're like, yep, yeah, that's the guy. It's why I almost was like Dwayne Haskins over Kyler Murray. There was a part of me that was like Haskins can still make it work. And that's when I started getting into the idea of process versus results. I wrote about it over at the RSP. Like at some point you, you've got to take the process and throw it out when you see the kind of results that can take place with a quarterback like Murray. And so – but for me, yeah, it's that pocket passer. Yeah, and I think part of that too is learning or adjusting your process to understand what's the weight value of speed, what's the yeah. weight value of certain skills, you, you know. Because like you know, the joke I'm sure among fantasy people who are critical of my work would say, "Well, you're imprinting too." Or I've heard people say that. Well, you seem to lean towards you know, big backs who are slow, right? you know, Spencer Ware and Peyton Barber and, you know, folks like that. And I'm like, that's fun. You know, there, I certainly do, but I don't rank them in my top five necessarily. I think Spencer Ware, I rated, rated maybe fifth, but it was a, it wasn't a, a huge, it wasn't mm -hmm. a huge running back class, but like, you know, Malcolm Brown, another example of player, but these are guys I like who've, who I look at as late round players who can be sleepers for you when they get into the game and get a play. And they've certainly bared out that way, but you have, but yes, early on for me, you have to, you know, that's part of it. I think is learning that difference between like, where does my imprinting write? But where is, where am I just like, where's the weight? Am I weighing things right? You know? Am I, yeah. and, and I think that's part of it too. Yeah. I mean, I think, Weight and weighing traits is perhaps the most important and also the most difficult part of this. Like, how much credit do you give pocket awareness? How much credit do you give change of direction? How much credit do you give sort of the touchy-feely traits like competitive toughness, you know, awareness and things like that? Getting that part of it right is extremely difficult and it can lead to some wild swings. I mean, I always bring up the example of how wildly I missed on Prescott. It was because I didn't give sort of that competitive toughness enough weight in my evaluation. And I swung wildly the next year and how I do it. Watson was QB one because of competitive toughness and, you know, getting how you weigh these various traits and what you look for, getting that part right is an evolving process as well because of the way the game's changed. And so, yeah, what how you weigh the traits is so critical to this entire thing, and it's not easy to do. Yeah, one of the things I'm still, like, waiting to see because I think it's too inconclusive to make a, a complete decision on is we're, I'm still talking about Teddy Bridgewater because yeah. Teddy Bridgewater had off-the-charts competitive toughness. That was never a, an issue with him, but – the even though I'm sure some people with that tackle attempt this yeah. year that you know whatever so but the the thing is is it's the arm strength you look at that arm and you go okay well what system will he fit in where he could deliver high end and the, now that I look at it I go not a, not many not yeah. not probably not any 
you know, when you look at it. It's like he's a good placeholder quarterback, a good backup who can help your team. Unless you have like unless you have a great team around him, you know, that's got an unbelievable running game, he's probably, you know, he's never gonna be a Pro Bowl caliber starter for you. Yeah. You know, in that respect. Now, the closest that he could have come to maybe have challenged that was in Minnesota, if he had stayed healthy. In Cleveland, if, you know, I would have, I, I'm i going to tell you right, I mean, you know, again, you know, lots of conversation about Baker Mayfield. If, if they were going to throw Baker Mayfield to the side of the road and they could get Teddy Bridgewater for another year, you know, for a year until they, until they get a guy, I would rather go with Teddy than, you know, because I think at least Teddy, I think Teddy has the things that Baker lacks, and the things that Baker has aren't as important to that offense right. as what Teddy has. Um, and and the, the answer being is that fine that you have a big arm, but you don't have touch, Baker Mayfield. You know, he doesn't have touch yet. He doesn't. He's missing decisions he shouldn't miss. He doesn't understand how to maneuver in a pocket and and really make plays in a way that Teddy Bridgewater can do all those things. Yes, Baker Mayfield can throw the ball with some zip, you know. Yeah. In that offense, Teddy Bridgewater will extend plays better than Baker Mayfield will, prevent half fewer sacks, set up that run game better. So, things like that, but again, it's complicated, you know. We're looking at him and I had him as a high-end prospect. He's not, you know. Yeah. He's absolutely not. So, yeah. So who's a player that you've watched this year who offers some skills that you find promising, but you but you just think they're clearly limited talents at this point in their development? I mean, an easy answer is Malik Willis from Liberty. I mean, he's so incredibly talented and unique, but I do think that he's similar in respect to Trey Lance where the talent is there, but it's going to take the perfect environment, I think, for it to sort of come together. Um, there's going to need to be a lot of, say, organizational patience. Um, you know, an ideal scenario for him might be to go to a place like Detroit with their second pick late in the first round where you're not coming in expected to be the guy right away. They can have a little bit of patience. They can, they've got clearly a two- or three-year plan going forward. They've got – Jared Goff in place where say whatever you want about Jared Goff, but for the time being, he can be a viable option for them. And so I think, yeah, that's, that's a scenario for him. If he goes to a place like, you know, throwing out teams like Washington, where there's an expectation, well, we got to win right now. We got this new shiny toy. We got to get him on the field. There will, if he ends up in Washington, there will certainly be organizational pressure from, you know, the C-level suites up top at FedEx Field, that could be a disaster. And so Malik Willis is the name for me. Yeah. For me, it's Tyrion Davis-Price. Speaking of big running backs who aren't extremely fast, yeah. um, you know, this guy's a 232-pound thumper. He's got really good feet. So kind of, again, Malcolm Brown, you know, Peyton Barber, um, you know, Spencer Ware, kind of in that mold a little bit. Um, in terms of that, I mean, he will truck you. Um, and what really impressed me about him was aspects of his pass pro. Like he's a smart, he's smart at diagnosis. Like he can identify, you know, cross blitz as well. He identifies where, 
they may layer blitzes where they have a, a, a corner blitz and a safety blitz, and he understands to let the outside guy go for the for the inside guy, but he'll yeah. put himself in a position where he'll stay outside and, and force the, the safety to take a wider path. I mean, the corner to take a wider path and then slide inside and take on the, 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 the safety. He does stuff like that extremely well. Now, his he overextends and winds up getting beaten to the punch a lot and doesn't know how to throw a punch yet. And at 232 pounds, if this guy learns how to throw a punch, he's going to be like A.J. Dillon in pass pro, who I think is a very promising pass pro um, player um, at the running back position, and that will continue to manifest itself in Green Bay. But, yeah, the lack of speed, the, the you know, the quickness is good, but the lack of speed makes him limited and, and I and it's it's too bad because I look at this guy and there's a lot of nuance to his game and I think if this guy somehow shows a little more speed to than what I've seen thus far on tape I might get more excited about him but he's a he's like to me a good contributing NFL prospect but not a guy you're gonna want as a starter and yeah and he's just like that close because there's I'm gonna do a, a film room on him where I show all the pass pro stuff because it's really intriguing so. So what's a part of draft season that you would warn people to limit their exposure to? All of it? Is that a viable <laughs> answer? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, honestly, like, anonymous source season. Uh, like, I, I think I ignore it all. I have people reach out to me and tell me things, you know, players, things like that. I let it go in one ear and out the other. Like, like I don't use it in my work. I don't talk about it. Um, I might use it to push back on narratives that get formed. If a narrative gets formed about a player that, you know, I've heard things to the opposite of, you know, and I, I think it's either a flawed narrative or, you know, a mischaracterization of a player, then I might use that information to kind of push back. Um, but it is lion season for a reason. It is called lion season for a reason. You know, it, big insiders, medium level insiders, small little people like me, um, we get fed things for a reason. Um, whether it's coaches doing it, scouts doing it, agents doing it. So you have to limit your exposure or at least give that stuff appropriate weight. And for me, that weight is almost in, negligible. Um, because everybody has an agenda, you know, everybody is serving somebody as the song lyric goes. And, and so when we start getting into March combine, you know, pre-draft weeks leading up to the draft, when you hear stories about guys rising, guys falling, guys having medical issues, guys that don't work right, don't work hard enough, you block it all out. It, it's being, so it's a bill of goods being sold for, to serve somebody else's purposes and I just try to ignore it. I think that's fantastic advice. And I would say the only time I've ever used stuff just like you is either to counter what's being said, just to highlight the ridiculousness of it, or to you know to give a different point of view on of what the field shows as opposed to what's being said. Or when I've actually, I had one source, and I talked about that source recently on my site, where I, I yeah. basically said, you know, basically. He was connected to multiple teams and he was in an operational capacity, but in a way where 
he didn't he didn't have anything to he didn't have any type of um, agenda on that level to share. It was more out of a you know, like I wrote and I talked about him as a mentor and he wrote me after seeing the article and said, I'm not a mentor to you. I'm just a, I'm a colleague who basically um, demystified the stuff that, and confirmed the demystification that you had already seen. That was basically what I've served as a purpose to. And I give you examples of that because I want to further give validation to the things that you write about. So that's kind of, um, those are the exceptions to that. But I think that's a great one. The other one I'd say is the one-year mentality. Yeah. I know that the NFL, bad NFL owners have a one-year mentality. And it can be a reality in the NFL. But the good teams end up picking those guys off up off the dumpster, off the side of the road, and make them good players. Um, and they don't necessarily make them good players. They just give them opportunities to be good players um, that fit what they do. And I think that... The, the less, the more that you can separate your fantasy mentality of a one year, he has to be immediately good or the odds are stacked against him from the how talent actually works is that he just may not have been drafted by the best team, the right fit. Some cir cir circumstances happen. Keep these guys on a separate list. If you're going to, you know, most of the, a lot of people we have listening are fantasy players. My advice to you is that you can play the odds and say, all right, if they're not immediately top players in their first year, then you got to put them, maybe move them down a tier on your list. But maybe you need to make certain lists that say, these are guys I'm going to buy low on. These are guys that I'm going to keep on my waiver wire because there's talent there, but they just haven't had the opportunity yet um, or the right circumstances for them to be able to shine. And that way, when you have those lists, you can kind of say, Here's the room, you know, one of the circumstances that I use these lists for, you know, because one's maybe the, my lottery ticket, I have room for one player. Who's the yep. one player I can pick up that I can keep adding to? This is the time of year where I'm, I need, you know, I can take chances and fill my summer roster with five guys who that I'll probably end up cutting again. But I'll do this every year until this guy retires from the league or until he gets hurt and something happens that, you know, there's really no chance that he's ever going to be good again, you know. And as a result of that, you'll wind up with a Cordero Patterson. You'll wind up with a Raheem Mostert. You'll wind up with players like that because you're you're keeping up with, you're separating talent from opportunity. And I think that's what you need to, to do. You can't put one year of opportunity if they don't make good, they're not talented enough. It just means, yeah. they, it just means they didn't fit the the mold in the same way that maybe your kid who you know you know i'm sure there's probably some statistic that shows that kids who don't have a certain you know who don't show a certain number of skills in first grade or second grade as readers wind up and you know wind up um you know having a lower income in their life well there's you know, there's fucking 10, 15 years between knowing what's going to happen and so much that will happen between now and then. But if you just accept that, you know, you, you're not, you're doing the kid disservice. So, and you're doing yourself a disservice if you have a kid and that's going on. So, you, you know, you work towards, all right, let's focus on it one year at a time and let's, let's, let's tailor expectations here, but you know, continue to, to, you know, apply and have contingencies with how we work at stuff. So, um, 
What's another one that I want to ask you about? What's a part of draft season that that in the past you liked or disliked in the past, but you've changed your mind about? Yeah, I think it's the combine. Um, I used to just ignore it. Don't need it for my purposes. Don't need it for what I do. Like it's underwear Olympics. It's silly, whatever. But I do think that the more you look at, and especially for me, you move outside the realm of quarterback evaluation to other positions. There is a value in some of that testing. There is a value in some of that data, the, you know, the jump in the explosiveness for, you know, certain positions, the, you know, if you, the 40 in lawn speed is certainly the nice shiny object, but the 10 yard split, like, I don't care if you get to the NFL and you're a wide receiver, you're going to be fast enough, but I want to know if you can win when routes are one in that sort of 10 yard window. Like if you're slow in that 10 yard split, like it's going to make me think about you from a scheme fit perspective and things like that. And so initially I was like the combine, I don't care. I don't need that stuff. But now I think, with the data we have available, with the testing that is done, with the different ways we can parse out that testing for different positions, there is some value in the combine beyond the shiny stuff like the bench and the 40 and the stuff that gets the eyeballs. When you drill down into some of these rows, there's a value there. Yeah, that explosive the the short area yeah. explosive element is is absolutely critical. And I yeah, I would absolutely agree with that that that's a that's an area that is that is really important. Um, gosh, what's a part in the past that I've liked or disliked, but I've changed my mind? I mean, I'd say hand size. Yeah, was, that was know, gonna be my other one. It could be hand size day. Yeah, hand size day was something that I really disliked. Um, I can't say I've completely changed my mind about it, but I've amended it to a degree, just like the combine stuff. It's like learning to create the right baselines yeah. and tiers for what's good and yeah. where it can fit. And it's and I think that's the thing is what I've learned most about draft season is that it's not about he can or he can't. It's about where he can and where he can't. What what role can he do because now he's in this tier of athletic performance or in measurement and what where can he not succeed? He may not succeed in Buffalo or New England or um, Cleveland with small hand size. Right. He might do just fine in New Orleans. Yeah. You know. So it's you know it's that kind of thing that that I think is is probably what's changed my mind more than anything about that. And I will say that though this doesn't really fit the question. I will say I'm so glad that the NFL has finally gotten rid of the um, gotten rid of the Wonderlic? Wonderlic test. That's yeah. something that I mean, almost to celebrate, you know, even though yeah. it's about 25 years too late. But yeah. you know the, but again, it's going to be interesting what they replace it with, because now they have these other interview style tests and these other cognitive. Um, you know, how well they see things and react to things in time that like, you know, there were tests that Pat Mahomes was apparently off the charts with, you know, but I wonder again, with every new technology, there's always a lag for how to use it and apply it. So I'm looking forward to learning what the new technology is going to be um, 
bandied out to the to the mass media on draft day that we're going to learn about that everyone's going to glom onto and then then find out in the next five years where its flaws are not meaning that it's worthless you know like the combine i'm mean, like the wonderlick was worthless right and, but but whether or not you know always with everything when it's new everybody's like yes this is you know this is going to be this is great, and everybody leans on it like it's it's the gospel. I'd rather lean on it as a as a guidebook that you don't know whether or not um, you're kind of skeptical of. It's like a guidebook to restaurants where you go in and go, well, let's see it. Let's see if the the first five recommendations are decent, and let's see, and let's try different foods. And well, then whoever whoever ate this really hasn't had authentic Mexican food, and who's ever had this must get like drugs, you know, get grocery store sushi. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And then you realize, but they understand hamburgers and hot dogs really well. Yeah. Okay. So that whole frame of reference thing I'm looking forward to. So um, is there a bench player who contributed down the stretch of the NFL season whose plays left you intrigued or at least hopeful for their future? Isaiah McKenzie. For yeah, the great call. He, yeah, I mean, his game against New England a couple of weeks ago when Beasley was out was tremendous. And what was really interesting was it wasn't just a couple of plays where he was like the fifth read. They were calling stuff for him. You know, they were doing some jet sweep stuff, some, you know, fly sweep stuff with him. They were calling some crossers where he was the primary read. It wasn't like, oh, he's just, we're going to run him out there and whatever. We're going to throw to Stephon Diggs all the time. They were, they were game planning for him. And so I was really impressed by that. I know the Bills have a, a decision about Beasley's contract status coming up. So McKenzie, for me, thinking about that Patriots-Bills game Saturday night, he's kind of a guy that really worries me uh, from a Patriots fan perspective. So, yeah, McKenzie. And, again, he, this is a great example of someone to make that point about one-year or bust expectations. He was a fifth-round yeah. pick of John Elway's Denver Broncos. Didn't last long in Denver, you know. And now he's a guy that I know that Doug brought him up last year as a guy yep. that he was really high on. You know, you've seen him and like what you've seen. And he's made a huge impression. I think a guy that isn't going to, there are two for me. One who I don't think it's going to elevate his opportunity to really be a starter in the league, but he'll get a contract. And if someone gets hurt, he can come in and be good. And that's, um, I can't even remember his name now that I'm um Jackson, the the um the kid out of Northwestern with the Chargers. Um Why am I blanking it? Yeah. Austin Jackson? Uh, no, but um the running back Jackson. Um it's so funny that I can't remember his name because everybody knows Justin Jackson. Um because okay. I was I've always been a big fan of his game. But Justin Jackson impressed me um being helped when he's healthy, he looks good, you know, and and I think that you can see why they had him a little bit above Austin Eckler in terms of what they were looking at pre-draft. Though Eckler's turned into the better player, and part of that is availability. But yeah, you know, but but there's more to it than just availability, um, right. you know. But but Jackson isn't a slouch, and I think that he has an opportunity. And I think Laquan Treadwell has, you know. I don't think he's a – I'm not looking at him to become the next 1,000-yard receiver to come out of the ash pile. But right. I, I do think that there's some there's some 
things that you can get out of his game where, you know, I don't know if a team's going to say, oh, well, he fits what we want from a starter. But I think he's kind of an Alan Lazard type of a player. He can give you that Lazard-like role for a team. And if they have other, you know, if they have a good offense, he's someone that can become a matchup problem with his size and be a tr- and he's making some trustworthy plays with a rookie, you know, that you know, I think part of it was is there was a lot of pressure on him early on as an early pick. He wasn't yeah. fast. He dropped the ball early because he was thinking, overthinking things. And then every time he got in the game, the expectation was went into Atlanta, it was like, well, we're going to pick him off the scrap heap and hope we got a first-round talent out of him. So he's always been the guy, like, I'm supposed to be the primary guy. And I think that pressure probably caused him to drop, make mistakes and drop balls. And then teams were like, ah, he's just a scrub. And now that he was treated as a scrub, he's more than that. You know, he's more than a scrub. He's just not a, he's just not a top talent, you know? And I think that that's where, you know, that's that's an interesting guy for me. Um, so where are we with Tua Tungavailoa after Brian Flores getting fired um, and the uproar over that and with Deshaun Jackson still kind of out in limbo and a, another draft class coming down the pike with players that we're not exactly looking at and saying these are fantastic quarterbacks here. Some could be good, but we're not like pounding the table for anybody here what you know where 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 are we with him i mean i i think on from reading the report and and sort of you know what's been said about this situation it seems like Tua was the winner in a sense it seems like if the reporter is to be believed and i have no reason not to believe it the power struggle was in a sense flores didn't want Tua. Flores wanted Justin Herbert. And, you know, maybe you could make the case that Flores looks to be right about that. Ownership on down wanted Tua. And now who's out of the job? Flores is. And so I think the signs point to Tua is certainly going to get another chance going forward. So, I mean, I think that's one way to look at it. I think ultimately that would have been the right decision anyway because this incoming class probably isn't, going to threaten most incumbent starting quarterbacks right now for that week one job. So I think Tua is the starting quarterback for the Miami Dolphins for 2022 in week one. I think ultimately the question is, is he the guy in week eight, in week 10? And that I think is a tough, a tougher question to answer because have there been developmental strides? Yeah. Has he made some improvements to his game? Yeah. Is it enough for me to sit here right now and say he's certainly the guy? No, I'm not confident in that at all. I think there are things that he's struggling with from a mechanical standpoint, from an arm talent standpoint that aren't coming together for him right now. I think the fact that they had to staple together, make the entire offense out of RPO heavy stuff is a sign that they're trying to prop him up a bit, similar to other offenses, whether it was McVay and Goff, whether it was Stefanski and Mayfield, where they've got to scheme him up, but in a sense it's hindering his development because they're making him a puppet. Uh, of a quarterback and so I think two has got an opportunity going forward to develop but I think the th- ice is thin under him okay so let me ask you this as a follow-up question about two of them do you think you know that um do you think that 
the puppeting, you know, kind of the marionette puppet type of thing that they did with Tua, do you think that they could have done more to allow Tua's Tua has enough to develop if they didn't do that? Like, like it seems to me Miami was like, oh, we're more competitive than we thought we were, and and then and then as a result they were like, well, let's just let's do what we can to like just make it workable rather than take a step backwards and let develop, let Tua organically develop in a way that would be more lasting. Do you think that there's enough into his game to develop in a more lasting sort of way? I mean, I think there is enough potential there where it could happen. I don't know if Miami is going to be an environment that allows it to happen, given the sort of changes that are underway. And he might be now with his, you know, fourth offensive coordinator since his time in the NFL because they had this sort of two offensive coordinator system this year. I also think your point about them being ahead of schedule was a detriment, you know, because they couldn't just sort of develop them and, and go through the lumps. They had to find ways to win. You know, it's similar to the Florida Gators with Tim Tebow, like their jobs to win games. Urban Meyer's job was to win games. And so we're going to run jump pass and fake QB draw and, and stuff like that with Tim Tebow, we're not worried about development. We got to find ways to win the SEC, and so I think that's also something that the Dolphins went through. It's interesting to spin that to the Philadelphia discussion, yeah. Because Philadelphia is now in the playoffs, but I think to their credit, to Sirianni and Steichen's credit, and Steichen is a name that is getting, you know, discussed about a potential head coach with reason. Herbert last year now hurts. They've still done things while focusing on the run game, and you know allowing him to do some stuff as an athlete, as a runner, that you could still see more positive signs of his growth this year. Get into the third read on a concept. Get into the backside dig. Maybe it's not happening every single play, but you turn on to a week one to a week 18. He's the same quarterback. Like He's the same guy. You turn a Hurts week one, Hurts now, much different quarterback. Much different quarterback. That growth is there. That development in the pocket is there week one he's pulling everything down throw read one run read two that was where he was now he's going one he's going two he's getting to the backside dig he's getting to the check down he's doing those things is it on a down to down basis no but it's much more apparent with him than it is to us so i do think there's something there with Tua, but i'm just not quite sure we're ever going to see it i'm gonna i'm gonna take on a popular viewpoint i think with this and I'm going to say the Dolphins were 110% right to fire Brian Flores. Really? Yes, because as because here's the thing. I admire Flores as a coach. He did a great job build, taking a team and making it better overall. But here's his fatal flaw, and it's something that I think he will learn from, and I think any team that hires Brian Flores, if they can get him to – understand this then they will be 150 percent right to hire him back okay but okay. what where he messed up was to go i wanted justin herbert so therefore i'm going to um basically schematically throw a temper tantrum that i didn't get him and therefore yeah. i'm going to remind the team and turn the team and turn the public in, in maybe not overtly but indirectly turn the team against the quarterback that is your quarterback. So right. basically what you did is you undermined your team. 
And I'm not saying he went out publicly and did this. You know, if he did right. that, he would have been fired a long time ago. Yeah. You know, but the fact that if we're reading the media stuff right, he never wanted them and he made it clear and he, they, and instead of embracing the fact that this is the guy I've got, let me make the, let me do the best we can to make the most out of him. Instead, it was kind of like, we'll do some things, but you're not really, you're not, there's more there for Tua to develop. That's my point. Right. So if there's yeah. more there for him to develop, instead of just slap, putting some slapdash plan together, that isn't great, you know, and let's look, I mean, let's be serious. The fact that you're using Jalen Waddle as Jarvis Landry isn't because of right. Tua. It's because yeah. they didn't have, it's because they brought in Will the Chiquita Fuller, you know, in terms of his frequency being on the field. And they have Mike Giusecki, who is basically, you know, a, you know, he's basically Travis Kelsey in one of those um, elderly carts that you see at the grocery store, the, the motorized cart, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's basically yeah. what, I mean, he can go up and win a ball, but he's not a, you know, he's very limited in what he can do well. And so you have all these limited parts and your best player who should be like, who should be a, you know, up there with, honestly, should be up there with Jamar Chase in terms of talent. Yeah. And you had to use him, basically, I said you had to use a Porsche as basically a pickup truck this year. That's basically what they did with him. And that wasn't because Tua doesn't have the arm strength to throw a deep ball. You know, he may not have the best arm strength, but he can certainly throw deep passes. I've watched it for, you know, three years. We watched it for three years in Alabama, you know? Yeah. And it, the, the issue is there's a lot of other issues with this. And I think the problem is, is that Brian Flores committed a leadership mistake. He committed a mistake of not saying, this is the guy we got to roll with and do the best we can to make it work with him. And, and as a result, it was kind of like, you could tell that the way this tool was treated was like, he's not good enough right away. And therefore the fans logged into that because the fans jump on that. And then it creates yep. that perception that the coat, that it comes back to the owners and you, the team has that perception. And there's this like golf, like at least with the Browns, Baker Mayfield was their guy, you know, yeah. we're going to live and die with Baker Mayfield, whether that was right or wrong, but they got deep into the playoffs with that. And now we're at a point where you could say, should we trade for Matt Ryan and try and get that out in his contract? Should we go somewhere else in the draft? We've got the team. We've got the coach. I know that there's criticism about Stefanski, yep. but it's not nearly, it's not because Stefanski was like, you know, Baker, you know, I don't want Baker Mayfield. And because you didn't get me Lamar Jackson, therefore I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create this issue, you know, right. to, to make it known that you've never wanted a guy while you're trying to compete. That's a fatal flaw. I, yeah. I, and I, and I think so. So great coach, not a good leader at this stage. And it's a, something he can learn from, but I think I mean, it's, they had to do it. Yeah. They had to get, rid I of mean, them. I think, in that sense, it's very much McDaniel's 2.0 because you, we all remember his McDaniel's time in Denver with yeah. Jay Cutler. I mean, it's like the same thing. Yeah, and it's like to to me, if that's the if that's what's going on, um, 
you, that's not a leader. That's not a manager of men. That's not someone who is, um, because that's the most important position. And if you're not going to give the support to that player, yeah, you could, there's other ways to communicate that than how he must have for this to right. all roll out the way it did. <coughs> and I think that that's, and, and a lot of head coaches are that way. They're like, he's not my guy. Um, I didn't want him. I hate rookies, whatever it is. And then it turns into, you know, and what happened is it just turned into a mess, you know, because of the fact that the team was going one direction with the coach and, and they were leaving a player behind that needed to be at the front of the team. Right. You know? And so it's, it, you know, I, it's unfortunate and maybe there's special circumstances to the, to the fact that he didn't anticipate the team was going to be as good as it was. But at some point you got to say, well, you know, his fear probably was, well, if we take a step back, now it's going to look like I'm bad because the team was good for this period of time. But I don't know. I it's a, it's a difficult situation, but I think that I would probably rather have rolled with him not making it known that, that your, your figurehead of your offense isn't the guy you want and that you're yeah. still want if you're if if it's still getting out that you wanted Justin Herbert well you know it's kind of like saying it's like being married and going you know it's like being married to someone and and saying that you you're still pining for someone that you were never going to get anyway right. like it was never realistic you know i mean maybe it was they had a realistic shot you know of getting him but you got to let it go it didn't happen you know, yeah. it, or you, or you just need to leave the situation, leave the relationship. You need to be the one to leave. And that's yeah. what they, that's what they did. They divorced him from the team. So where are we with the Vikings personnel decisions? Um, I mean, I, I think they were understandable. Um, you know, sometimes you lose the voice of the locker room. Sometimes, you know, I, I was more surprised by Spielman being fired as well. Me too. Um, I wasn't surprised by Zimmer. I think we all sort of saw that coming. The Spielman one was one that that sort of surprised me. And now, you know, the incoming general manager, he or she's going to have to make a decision about Kirk Cousins. I mean, that's going to be first order of business. It, but, yeah, the, the Spielman one surprised me. Zimmer didn't surprise me at all. Yeah, the Zimmer one didn't surprise me for the same reasons. And then the Spielman did, even though I know that he didn't hit on a lot of draft picks, but the draft picks that he hit on, he hit on pretty well. I mean, like... I mean, it's not like this team was built on free agency. You right. still have Anthony Barr and Eric Kendricks, and you still have Justin um, Jefferson and Dalvin Cook, and you, you know you, you've still picked a core Harrison Smith. And well, Smith's been around a little longer, maybe, yeah. but you you've picked a core of players, and sometimes you're not going to hit on some, but. You know, and they've been able to add other players into the mix who've been valuable. This team's close in terms of being able to be a contender. So yeah. it's inter it'll be interesting to see how they go. Um, what's the what do you want to see with the Bears coach search? Can you you can either discuss names or just characteristics of the type of staff you want to see? I mean, I, I what I want to see is a staff that's committed to quarterback development. I mean, this is an organization now that has had a crack at two different young quarterbacks and hasn't got it right yet, but I still am a believer in Justin Fields. And so I want to see a commitment to quarterback development. I want to see, 
you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, coaching retreads are always sort of, a, you know, you'd like to see new talent. You'd like to see new names, new views. But I do look at Doug Peterson and think for at least their small window of time at the start, he had Carson Wentz where he needed to be. Now we had DiFilippo, we had Frank Reich as well, but those three had Carson Wentz playing at an MVP type level. And certainly Carson Wentz didn't play like at that kind of guy this year. Um, but I think Peterson's an interesting name. I'll continue to bang the table for Pep Hamilton, at least as an offensive coordinator. Um, I know that there are some, our, our friend Jeff Risden, every time I bring up Pep Hamilton, he loses his mind because, you know, when you go back to his time with, with the Michigan Wolverines, it wasn't great. Like there are some things that, you know, Pep hasn't probably done too well in his past. I look at Justin Herbert two years ago. I look at Davis Mills this year, and I think that's a guy that can develop quarterbacks, or at least in the, re- in the past couple of years has figured out how to do it. And so, you know, Peterson and Pep as a one-two head coach OC, I would love that if I'm a Bears fan. I would love that as a believer in Justin Fields. And so the Bears search, that's where it has to be focused on quarterback development. And I know you just hired a guy to develop quarterbacks in Matt Nagy and it didn't work out, but you got to get this Justin Fields piece right. So if you decide to go with Brian Flores or a defensive-minded head coach because we see that cycle, offensive guy, then defensive guy, players coach versus disciplinarian. If you want to go the defensive-minded approach, whether it's Flores, whether it's Brendan Vic Fangio back as your head coach, fine. Get the OC hire right then. Pep Hamilton, maybe Shane Steichen, but one of these people that has shown you they can develop a quarterback along the way. Yeah, I like that idea. I mean, it's like – you don't want to overreact in one direction or, you know, in the opposite direction with all of right. this. So I think it is. It's a learn from your mistakes and figure out how 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 to get it right with the with the original motivation. You know, yeah. so I think that makes sense. I want a I want a person who's who's a good manager as opposed to being specifically an expert at some aspect that they're no longer going to be doing. And if yeah. and if they're wanting to have their hands in that then I don't want them, you know, unless they've proven that they're a great manager, you know, and I don't know how you're going to get that unless you go back in time and hire somebody who's already proven that. And they, they decided that AARP isn't any fun anymore um, unless they can get to use it more with their traveling. So, um, you know, so I would say that that's the bigger deal to me is that teams over and over again, make the mistake of let's, Let's hire someone who's going to manage, um, you know, who's going to to manage people and identify where we need to make changes and when we need to be agile and identify problems and be able to match talent to what your or match scheme to the talent, as yeah. opposed to being going. Well, this is how I do things. This is how I right. want things done. I have no realistic experience about how to make that implemented. I just want it all. It's like someone who's like a, they get hired to be, you know, someone who was a line cook and they get hired to be like a, a chef of a restaurant and they, but they've never shopped for groceries before. They've never understood, they've never bought equipment before. They don't understand, you know, how to, you know, basically even manage the front of the house, you know, all that stuff, but they demand all sorts of unrealistic stuff or they're not put, they're put in charge of all this stuff and they suck at it. And the only thing they were good at was like basically making steak, you know, right. it's just like, it's, it's just silly. And so I'm, 
I, I, I'm tired of owners going, well, who did ESPN or, you know, I'm going to make fun of your group here, USA oh, Today or NFL.com or anybody who's major media, who... Who did who do they recommend because they like what that guy did and and they've interviewed well or they've shown some good stuff schematically, you know, you know you may, you may or may not like the some of the coaches that I bring up, but there's two in the AFC North who I believe were special teams coaches who had no like masterful skill in running offense or defense, who've been around, who've been playing and who've been coaching competitive football in that division for a long time now. Ben yeah. Roethlisberger has never had a losing season. Yeah. I, as whatever you like, Mike, listen, and every, and players I've ever met who've been there rave about the Pittsburgh Steelers experience compared to yeah. other teams, you know, and that includes playing for playing with guys like Peyton Manning, you know, or hot coordinators in the past, you know? So, I, to me, that's what it's about is do you do you have a guy who can create a culture and realize when they're screwing up that they need to shift rather than going my you know your playbook being your binky and that you need right. to call plays. No dude, you need to read some books and need to get some you need to get some lessons and you really don't need to have this job because you needed to learn Matt Nagy how to how to deal with and make adjustments. You've got a dynamic runner as a quarterback. And you're not going to use him in that way, even as some of a threat. Right. You know, I mean, you're going to run the, the plays that they ran that we talked about weeks ago were awful. You know, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, to me, that's just a that's an indication of teams don't know how to interview and bad leadership overall, you know, from the coaching standpoint to the ownership and, and GM box. So. What's the biggest thing you've learned about football this year? I mean, this is something I learn every year. Just there's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that I don't know the the way that I would like. I mean, I mean, I think the biggest one for me this year was more pass protection stuff. Um, you know, when my experience as a player, everything was full slide. Everything we did was full slide. Just slide left, slide right. Like that's kind of the way we did it. And now you know, taking the time each week to study stuff and see some of those different slides and, you know, the different calls that can be made and the different adjustments and calls within calls and things like that. You know, it's, it's a part of my sort of understanding of the game that I'm constantly trying to fill in each off season. And I've got a stack of stuff just out of you here that I've already started to read in anticipation of next year, but pass protections, it's something that I need to get better at. Um, and it's, hugely critical to the game yeah yeah i think for me next year as i've talked about before it'll be um tackling technique um, right because there's things that you know i'm just the more and the more i watch it the more i identify it's like it's so funny when people talk about contact and then you like watch film with a former linebacker and they're like that was an awful tackle attempt anybody could run through that but yeah but then when you listen to but when you listen to, you know, major media and Al Michaels sounds like he's having an orgasm because that's what he needs to do in order to sell the game, you know, and, and, and he does a great job of selling the game. But that's the part of it is that, like, I remember years ago watching Sony Michelle run over somebody and it was a big highlight. And then I watched I watched the game with someone who 
we watched that highlight and he was like, the guy's on his knees making the tackle. Right. What, you know, what did you expect? You know, he had no leverage, you know? So things like that, I think are important to me. Um, I think seeing that teams get creative with their strengths, you know, like the, the use of the toss play, you know, this year was a big learning thing for me to watch what the Niners did just by going, listen, we got Trent Williams. We got, we've got Kittle. We've got use check. Let's just get a fast guy. If that has to be yeah. Debo Samuel, it's Debo Samuel. We're going to, we're going to be able to run the ball because we can create college level creases against defenses. So, you know, Cordero Patterson, even with some of their toss plays, you know, right. a lot of those worked well too. Cause I'd argue Cordero Patterson is actually a good perimeter running back. He's everything that, I mean, like I'd say if you, if you asked me for Tevin Coleman or Cordero Patterson, I'd take, I'd take Cordero Patterson every time now at this yeah. age. So yeah, that's, that's, that's one of those things. So what's something you've watched, listened to played or read that, that you've enjoyed, you know, in recent weeks? Um, as I was telling you before the show, I got myself a new computer, um, thanks to holiday Black Friday sales. And so one of the first things I did was log on to Steam and start buying some new games. Tropico 6 is something I've been playing a lot in my spare time. You're basically like a, a dictator type uh, of a Caribbean island and you do sort of shady deals. It's like SimCity, but with like a dictator, you're a dictator playing SimCity. So I, I've enjoyed that. And on television, 1883, which is the Yellowstone prequel. Yeah. It's streaming on Paramount Plus. It's got Sam Elliott. It's got Tim McGraw. It's got Faith Hill. I've only watched the first two episodes. There are like four out. Those have been fantastic, along with Book of Boba Fett, which is the Boba Fett thing on Disney Plus. I've watched the episodes that have dropped on that. Those have been fantastic as well. I saw the final I saw the final season of Dexter, the reboot. Yeah. And I will say that it, the best way I'd put it is, it, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was it was kind of like if 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 that series was like a relationship you had and they did you wrong, you know, that was a good mea culpa. I would yeah. say that it was well done. I thought it was well written um, overall. Um, I would get, you know, if, if I put on a scale of one to ten. If I were being critical, I'd maybe I'd go five, five, six. If I were not being as critical, I'd give it a seven. It was definitely worth a watch. I can now skip the final two seasons if I want to revisit Dexter and watch it. <coughs> basically, seasons one through what you know, one through six, and then skip you know seven and eight and go directly to nine. Um, yeah. And that's the you know to me that's that's what's great about it. And it was it made sense like the things that they did made sense this time and you could understand where it was going to go and even the ending there are some people that might say it didn't make sense but i actually think i think it did and i thought it it was a it was the way that it needed to end so so that was the one that i that i really watched that i watched that i really enjoyed all right so instagram you know i I've been, you know, traveling. I, I went to Hawaii to visit my to visit our daughter and son-in-law, and and you know, I've been keeping up with my Instagram accounts here and there. So I have something I will share, and I think you'll appreciate this because um, you you come from the same era of music as I do. So 
you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna share this screen here with you and see if I can get it to play. But have this is pretty darn good if I can get it to play here. Down. Sounds like Michael McDonald. I can't get it off my mind. I need to see if it's true. <laughs> I can only hear the laugh. Okay, let me see if I can hear it a little louder. Wait, I'm pulling it up on Twitter here. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So basically what we're playing for people is that I, there's this woman who I follow who's this fantastic drummer. And she basically said, I heard this rumor that if you pitched down Anita Baker's voice by an octave, she sounds just like Michael McDonald. And so she's playing Sweet Love and pitches it down and it sounds exactly like Michael McDonald. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah I so. just heard it. It's incredible. <laughs> so that was my that was my instant my interesting Instagram moment of the week for me for me. Anything for you? For me, we have this routine in our family now where the kids shower before bed and then we have you know, some reading time, but that's really devolved into just like handing out as a family. And during that time, what's really become part of the little process is I play Instagram cat reels for the kids <laughs> and they love them. And there's one little trend where it's got, and I'm pulling up the audio now. Wait, it's, of course it's not playing. Right there. Cause I don't trust it. Not touching please. I said, don't <laughs> move. Move your hand. Move. Move it. Move it. Six feet. Social distancing. Come on. But it's got that audio over a cat, right like, pushing his owner's, like, hands away. And what's great is um, other owners will do it. They'll clip that audio and drop it into their own cat video. And so you've got just video after video of this. No touching. I said, no touching. Move your head, please. Six feet. Social distance. Of different cats and dogs. There was one with, like, a parrot. And, like, the cat, the parrot was doing it. It's that same audio. And We'll watch it for like 15 minutes and just die laughing. It's great every night. So, yeah, these like videos with that overlay audio of no feet, no, no touching, no touching. That's been really fun. I wish I made an Instagram video while I was in Hawaii because I was going to bring my bass to practice with. And then yeah. so I had to get like a, a flight case to do it. And then the case arrived the day before and it was too small for my bass. So like I had to ship it back and get a refund. So I ended up bringing my sack, one of my saxophones instead and practice yeah. that. And so what was funny is my, my kids have a, they have two cats and an Akita and the Akita Ooh. is like huge. Like he does not know. He's actually general around kids and the cats, but like when, if he thinks you want to play with them, you'll, you could wind up with bruises on your forearms because his, his tree trunk wow. legs. I mean, he's built to bait a bear pretty much the way they were built to bait bears in Asia. But like I was practicing and just to watch him, he was lit. I'd open the door to take a break and he would be sitting there in front of the, the, the bedroom when I, where I was practicing. And so I started playing for him and just to watch his ears like go up and down to stuff that I was doing was like hilarious. Cause he just apparently like, Chandler was laughing because she was like, yeah, he just parked himself there and sat for an hour. And one of the cats got in and like went under the bed. And at first he was kind of scared. 
And then after about it, and when I noticed that he was there, I tried to let him out and then he didn't want to come out. And he like finally did come out and then he just sat there and parked and listened. But it was just funny to see their reactions to things, you know, because like I saw somebody playing something for a squirrel on Instagram that was yeah. also pretty funny. And the squirrels were really eating a nut and just pausing and watching him. And I the saw guy's that like video. a foot away from him. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. All right. So who's one player you're buying for 2022 and beyond? Um, I'll give you two, Mac Jones and Davis Mills. You're on the David. You are sold on Davis Mills. See, I think he's done at least enough to warrant being the guy next year, which if you would have told me that, like, you know, this time last year, I would have said, no, no I don't think so. But I, I think with all the needs that Houston has, I don't think quarterbacks should be something they force because of what Davis Mills has done this year. Uh, I think, He's shown that there's something there and they can use their, you know, they'll have a pick. I think they're picking a three. There's, I don't know if there's a quarterback I'd pick a three in this draft anyway, but you could draft a Derek Stingley. You can draft, you know, the Alabama lineman or the NC state lineman. You can draft one of those pass rushers. If you like the one that falls to you, and it might be the third one. Um, You could draft whoever, but I think Davis Mills is somebody that has earned a shot going forward. So yeah, Davis Mills. That's a perfect answer, both of them. I don't know if I can change anything, and so I'll say I'll add a I'll add a player to the list. Um, I'm buying Jerion Ely out of Ole Miss as a player. Who, oh yeah, who as a prospect? I watched him last night. He reminds me of Dave Meggett. Like I I I dig how he plays. He's he's undersized, um, but as a role player who can give you big plays, catches the ball pretty darn well in the vertical game. And he play he runs hard for a for a five eight one ninety type of guy. Um, so I'm and he's a multiple skills player. He was a he was drafted by the Major League Baseball. So I like guys who have multiple levels of skills. That usually tells you that they have that athletic component to their game that they just get it. You know, yeah. they can integrate things well. And I think he integrates a lot well, pretty good into his game. So he's a guy that I'm buying. Um, Who's someone you're selling in 2022 and beyond? Oh man, I was, I just had this name in my mind, um, and now I'm drawing a blank on it. Um, gosh, I'll give you one while you're doing that, while you're thinking. Yeah. Um, obvious. The obvious one's Baker Mayfield, but I've been selling on him for a while, so I'm not even. We'll go there. I'm still kind of selling on DK Metcalf. I think really? he's a very good player. I still think he's capable of being you know, a, one of the, you know, being a good NFL starter for years to come, but I don't think he has, he's been in the league three years now and he still hasn't improved the fundamental aspects of his game that would elevate him to being a perennial elite guy, you know, a a Julio Jones, a AJ Green, you know, that type of productive talent. He still has issues with how he uses his hands. And when Russell Wilson needed him to step up on plays that were hard, I'm not saying they were easy, but they were what Marvin Harrison would catch, what a Hall of Fame receiver would catch. And trust me, when we look at the Hall of Fame voting these days, it's the Hall of Very Good. So, you know, there's lots of good receivers that are waiting in line to get opportunities to be in there. But they were the guys that 
perennially were, you know, top 10 guys. And they made those catches. They made those big plays. And DK Metcalf doesn't make those plays. He makes the plays where he runs under the ball. He doesn't make the play where he has to come back for the ball and make it between two defenders and the balls literally lands in his chest. He doesn't make those plays. So he's good. He's not great. And so, you know, if someone's willing to buy him for the thought of greatness, I'm willing to sell him because I think he's merely good. And good in the NFL is awesome. He's an awesome receiver, just not that high-end level the way people are selling him to be. The name I was trying to put, Daniel Jones. And I, I think with Jones now, he's lost the GM that drafted him and the head coach that believed in him and said that he was our guy going forward. And now, you know, the Mara family, they had a press conference today, which was apparently a disaster and trying to like piece it together from quotes on Twitter. But they made it clear that every position now is going to be evaluated, including the quarterback position by the incoming head coach and general manager. And so you might have somebody, a, a new general manager here. She might not have been a fan of Daniel Jones. You might have a new head coach coming in that thought Daniel Jones is quarterback three in that draft class or whatever. And so I don't think Daniel Jones is going to get a clear opportunity. He might by default, but something tells me this organization is going to address quarterback. And so that has me very wary about his time in New York. Yeah. Good call. <laughs> We're back to the draft day. <laughs> there we go. We're back to it. Yep. So listen, we we really appreciate you listening. And of course, the RSP is available for, for pre-sale. You can get the RSP pre-draft and post-draft available for $21.95 at mattwaldman.com. You're going to get probably close to or over 1,000 pages of content that's all bookmarked <laughs> and easy to find, basically clicking through the bookmarks to, to look for what you want. This is something that has evergreen content for the next three to five years in terms of picking up free agents, these guys that you don't remember or never really knew much about who have the talent but may not have had the specific fit, you know, you're going to be able to hold on to those guys as well as get takes on players that may differ from the consensus rooted in, you know, very detailed um, process. And and that process is shown for you to see, you know, we're going on year 17, um, one year from being its own man pretty much at this point. Yeah. Um and so it's getting ready for graduation. I guess we'll put it that way. It's looking at schools. Might be signing a letter of intent somewhere. Yeah. Who knows? But uh, but yeah, you can get that then in the post-draft. It's available April 1st. You order it now. I'll email you and let you know when it's ready. Um, and then, of course, there is the RSP projections, which are available for $24.95. You get basically each year I go through a give you basically a two-year outlook for for every player that I think could imaginably contribute to a roster. It's divided up by teams, um, you know, each team that they're on. And then I give you rankings along with that um, based on short build and long-term, long build for Dynasty that are ranked and tiered and color-coded in their tiering. So it's a great compendium to the RSP pre-draft, post-draft that kind of closes the loop according to my customers who play fantasy because they they get that update several times a year and I'm going to and I finished the 2021 update actually next month or in March after free agency I'm going to give them like a little bit of like hey thanks for being with me you know and we ended in that time so that you get not look after the free agency period and then you know if you buy new you get your new 
projections starting in June. So for, you know, about $46, $47, you can get the full package. And most people tell me that they buy the pre-draft, post-draft for $50, and I sell it for $21.95. And a percentage of that, um, up to $5,000 every year is donated to Darkness to Light, an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children, as well as teaching people how to address and handle it in addition to prevention when it inevitably does happen so that the 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 victims um don't have the issues exacerbated because that can often make oftentimes um you know children aren't believed from what happens because as uncomfortable as we is as the subject is it's not always and usually not the person in the white van with no windows asking the kid if they want some candy you know it's often it's often a relative it can be a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or an uncle who does this that's why no one it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about but understanding those dynamics or a trusted coach as we saw you know over over years and years ago um these types of relationships that's you know kids are groomed in this fashion um they identify and they talk about how they identify these children and what types of dynamics that we need to look out for as an organization whether it's a school a workplace you know coaches um municipal groups whatever it is parents you know so that you you can understand how to handle this so that you don't put more damage on your child um and and you can protect children whether it's your child or somebody else's child. Um, so, you know, I appreciate those who've been able to donate. I've recently had a, um, you know, an FFPC winner who, you know, who has credited the RSP and said, I'd like to donate to a charity of your choice. And I said, here's where you can donate. You know, you can go to d2l.org and donate to them. And he was he donated that as a, as a thank you. Um, so I definitely appreciate that. And guys, I hope you have, you know, a wonderful playoff season. We'll be back next week to talk a little bit more about the NFL playoffs as well as continue to move forward with draft season.